Hello, I'm Mark Riley, and I'm Rob Hughes, and you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie, the greatest rock and roll star in the world ever, ever. So M is for The Manish Boys. Yeah, released in June 1964, Bowie's debut single, Liza Jane, credited to Davy Jones with the King Bees, was a commercial flop. In the same month, R&B group The Manish Boys were auditioning for Joe Meek at the same North London studios where the Conrad, which is another Bowie-affiliated band, of course, had auditioned for the producer at the start of the year. Correcto! So Bowie's then-manager, Leslie Conn, met The Manish Boys at La Gioconda Coffee Shop in Soho's Denmark Street in July 1964. They just changed the name from the Band 7, good idea, taking inspiration for their new name from Muddy Waters' 1955 song, Manish Boy, naturally. Another good idea. So the band were based in Maidstone in Kent and consisted of the horn player Paul Rodriguez, lead guitarist Johnny Edward Flux, sax player Wolf Byrne, keyboardist Bob Sully, bassist John Watson and drummer Mick White. So at this point, they've been playing support slots at the Marquee and the Scene and the Flamingo, those kind of clubs. Uh, we travelled about in a battered dormobile, recalled Byrne years later. I drove because I was the only one over 21 with a licence. Oh, bless. And so bassist John Watson doubled as vocalist, but Con suggested they audition Bowie as a permanent frontman. Dissatisfied with the King Bees and their repertoire of Howling Wolf and Willie Dixon covers, Bowie was receptive to joining. Yeah, okay, so this is from Kevin Can's book, Any Day Now. On the 19th of July, 1964, Con drives David to audition for the Manish Boys in the garage of Paul Rodriguez's home in Heathside Avenue, Coxheath, near Maidstone. Apparently, they were expecting a black American soul singer, only to be disappointed with what Rodriguez called, and I quote, this thin guy with long blonde hair. So you've got a guy called Davy Jones, and they're expecting something completely different. <laughs> Come on. I mean, it, <laughs> I wonder where they came from with that. Uh, all their reservations went out the window as the audition started though. Rodriguez admitted that Bowie was more talented than any of them and was also a better sax player than he was. So Bowie handed them a copy of Liza Jane and sang a new tune he's written called Don't Try to Stop Me. Bowie said later, I used to dream of being there, Mick Jagger. Yeah, they agreed to take him on, although Bowie carried on with the King Bees for a while. This is uh, what Bowie tended to do, wasn't he? Keep his options open for a bit. He was always looking round, wasn't he? I he mean, was. that was the thing, and getting dissatisfied pretty quickly, which, as we know, we've mentioned before, yeah. he, he did in his career anyway. Didn't yeah, he? definitely. So he made his live debut with the Manish Boys at Chick Sands Airbase Leisure Centre in Shefford, Bedfordshire. Following night, they played at the famous Eel Pie uh, Island Jazz Club. That was the first time he played there, I think. Was it? OK, yeah. we covered that quite uh, well didn't we, we actually did. previously in mm. the podcast but that was the place where they saw Rod Stewart in his underpants that's right wearing <laughs> well wearing women's knickers <laughs> knickers <laughs> thanks for straightening that out mate yeah no problem so Bowie then quit the King Bees for good as expected and threw his lot in with the Manish boys his only issue was that they insisted on staying based in Maidstone Rock and Roll Central in 1987 Bowie recalled I really didn't like that band at all it was rhythm and blues but it wasn't very good nobody ever earned any money the band was so huge it was dreadful Dreadful. And I had to live in Maidstone. No <laughs> offence to Maidstone, of well, course. Well, no. Well, there's a reason for this, Mark, because maybe his experience was soured by one occasion when uh, an ex-prisoner jumped him in the street. Uh, this big Herbert walking down the street just knocked me on the pavement, recalled Bowie, and proceeded to kick the poo out of me. I haven't got many good memories of Maidstone. <laughs> it would kind of sour it a little bit, wouldn't mm. it? Uh, one of the Manish Boys' live staples was James Brown, covering various songs of his at gigs. Uh, Bowie was a big fan of Brown's Live at the Apollo, uh, an open-air gig in Maidstone that summer. Bowie also decided to cover the kinks You Really Got Me. Oh, yeah, OK. So other gigs that summer included a return to Eel Pie Island, sharing a bill with Long John Baldry and his Hoochie Coochie Men, 
and this is with Rod Stewart, of course, on vocals. In his knickers. Women's pants. In October, Bowie and the band met up with the publisher Dick James, who offered them a deal. Wolfburn later regretted turning James down, saying that we really needed bookings. We weren't convinced that signing to him would get us more work. Mm, okay. I mean, he's one of the legendary figures, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, sure. So anyway, four days later, they met up with the independent producer Mickey Most at his office in Soho after playing an audition. The Manish Boys then recorded three songs for Decca with producer Mike Smith, Barbara Lewis's Hello Stranger, Gene Chandler's Duke of Earl, and Mickey and Sylvia's Love is Strange. They didn't get a deal. <laughs> Mike Smith, wasn't he the guy who'd spotted the Beatles at the cavern and recommended them to Decca? Is he really? I think he might be the same guy, yeah. Right, okay. So, uh, undeterred, Leslie Conn set up a meeting for Bowie and the band with his mate, Barry Langford, a TV producer. It was decided that the Manish Boys would appear on his new BBC Two show in the new year. So, you know, you think, well, oh, great, things start to move here. The Manish Boys received some wider exposure in November 64 when Leslie Thomas wrote an article for the London Evening News covering Bowie's role in co-founding what was then called the International League for the Preservation of Animal Filament, a lobby group for pop musicians with long hair. On the 6th of November 64, Bowie made his first appearance at the Marquee when the Manish Boys supported Gary Farr and the T-Bones. This was a night he attracted the attention of audience member Dana Gillespie, with whom he would become involved. We'll get into that a little bit more when we look at the marquee, won't we? Yeah, we will. Uh, We won't get too deep into it, but uh, just slightly. So a week later, Bowie was back on TV on BBC Two's Tonight programme, along with the Manish Boys, where he was interviewed by presenter Cliff Mitchell-Moore about the International League for the Preservation of Animal Filament, which had been... (laughs) That's a weird one, isn't it? I know it is. Uh, It had been changed its name by that time to the Society of Prevention of Cruelty to Long-Haired Men, which is a little bit more understandable. Certainly. Uh, Bowie also started writing songs with Bob Solly and Rodriguez around this time. Time, including one called So Near to Loving You. They then played some rehearsals with producer Shell Talmy. So they had the, had the right connections, certainly. Shell Talmy is legendary. Yeah. I mean, was, at, was at the heart of a load of the great uh, garage and beat records around that time, wasn't he? Definitely. So the Manish Boys then undertook a package tour, which we have covered before, mm. beginning at the ABC Cinema in Wigan, alongside Bobby Shafto and the Roof Raisers, Gene Pitney, the Kinks, Marianne Faithful, and Jerry and the Pacemakers. Con had managed to get them on the tour by saying they'd be a really good backing band for Gene Pitney although he actually knew they weren't anywhere near up for it. It was a bit of a ruse. So in the meantime, Con had been in touch with Shell Talmy again and convinced him to play a Bowie tune, Take My Tip, with the American actor Kenny Miller, who was looking to get into the pop business. Right. Uh, Talmy then agreed to produce the Manish Boy's first single. So in January 1965, at IBC Studios in Portland Place in London, Talmy produced two sides of a single, I Pity the Fool, which uh, Bobby Blue Bland had done, and Take My Tip. It was the same studio, incidentally, where a month later, Talmy would produce The Who's I Can't Explain. Iconic. So the recording included session player Jimmy Page, who'd been listening in on the Manish Boys rehearsal. After using a new Fuzzbox effects pedal, Page told Bob Sully, I don't think you're going to have a hit with this one. <laughs> Break it to me gently. Absolutely. Uh, things came to a head after the Manish Boys tried to get Con to take Bowie's credit off the label, which incensed Bowie and led to him losing interest in the band. Talmy saw Bowie's potential, though. I don't think that what he's writing at the time had a snowball's chance in hell of making it, but I thought, he's so original and brash, let's take a flyer. Good on him. All right, so I Pity the Fool was released in March 1965 and was described in Record Mirror as a bit of a raver. Uh, Bowie and the Manish Boys did a rehearsal for BBC Two's Gadzooks It's All Happening show. He and the band also attended recording of Ready Steady Go at Redifusion Studios, during which Bowie persuaded presenter Cathy McGowan to interview him about the new single, Ever Resourceful Bowie. Absolutely, and that footage doesn't exist, does no, it? No, it got wiped, oh, sadly. Frassum grassum. So in late March 1965... 
Bowie asked his mate Stevie Marriott, then with the R&B outfit, The Moments, to come along to rehearsals for The Manish Boys. The rest of the band were unimpressed and said they'd had enough members already. So Marriott just watched from the sidelines. He's one of the great frontmen oh. of all time, isn't he? Amid growing tension then between Bowie and the rest of The Manish Boys, he played his last gig with them in April at Bletchley in Hertfordshire. So this is where we get to the lower third, which we covered in L. Absolutely. So The Manish Boys went their separate ways soon after. Flux, Rodriguez and Solly wrote songs to Shell Talmy for a while. Flux also also known as Johnny Edward, then became a DJ on pirate radio stations Radio City and Radio London, and in 1982 wrote the number one single Save Your Love for Renee and Renata. Whoa! Which is great. This gets even better, though. And in the mid-'80s, Flux created and voiced a children's TV character... Metal Mickey. Oh, that's oh ridiculous. That's one of the most bizarre turns that this whole podcast has taken. Oh, mate. that's great trivia. Wolf Byrne, meanwhile, became a broadcaster as well, as well as a sometime actor. He's been in Silent Witness, BBC TV, while Rodriguez became a song plugger, and Bob Solly, as we know, became a very respected journalist for Record Collector. The A to Z of David Bowie, with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. M is also for Mr Fish. Michael Fish was born in Wood Green, London in 1940. His mother, Joan, worked in a chemist shop in Winchmore Hill. His father, Sidney, was an on-course bookmaker. So Fish had no formal education and started working at the age of 15, cleaning counters at the Colette's department store on Shaftesbury Avenue in London, where he was trained by legendary shirtmaker Kenneth Williams, no, not oh, him. Oh. Uh, Fish then moved on to Newwood Lingwood and after that Turnbull and Asser, well-known German street shirt makers who specialised in inventive made-to-measure shirts. One of his first clients there was Sean Connery, who'd just taken on the role of James Bond in Doctor No. Christ almighty! Oh. It's good, that, wasn't it? Oh, brilliant. Michael Fish's arrival at Turnbull and Asser helped the company to move with the times. This was their first ready-to-wear shirt designed by Michael Fish, and they were significantly different from their standard offerings. He changed the cut of the high-collared shirt, he made the points larger and more widely spread, and he introduced embroidery and ruffles. Mm. Somebody had to, didn't they? Mm. He also introduced pocket handkerchiefs, specially hand-blocked and printed. Oh, now that's a bit of class. Bit of class, absolutely. That certainly is class. So his designs were a reflection of what became known as the Peacock Revolution, a reaction against the sort of dull conformity and conservatism of male fashion. His designs were colourful and controversial, forward-thinking and also borrowing from historical tailoring. Mm. You could say that uh, Mr Fush swum against the tide, couldn't you, Mark? (laughs) His styles used floral patterns and often included ruffles, as you mentioned, vivid prints, lace and caftans. In 1966, he opened his own boutique in Mayfair with Barry Sainsbury of the famous family. Right. Uh, The exclusive shop at 17 Clifford Street was named Mr Fish. So he quickly became known for designing flamboyant, attention-grabbing clobber for the cultural aristocracy of London. Among his clients were Peter Sellers, Noel Coward, Lord Snowden, David Bailey, Patrick Litchfield, Terence Stamp, James Fox and the Rolling Stones. I mean, that's the thing. If you look at like Mick Jagger, I mean, he, he ended up going through all of that phase in his life and then now, now he just wears jogging pants. Oh, that's a terrible come down, isn't it, yeah, really? I, I would have thought so. Yeah. I bet he's got a great wardrobe at home. Oh. Mick, get to it. Uh, so the exclusivity of the shop was reinforced by high prices. Around £35 for a jacket, £100 for a suit, and anything between £8 and £20 for a shirt. This was down to his generous use of expensive fabrics. The originality of Fish's designs was expressed in the slogan on his shopping bags. 
peculiar to Mr. Fish. Oh, what price now? They are collectible, seriously collectible. Are they? Right, okay. By the early 70s, however, fashion had changed, as we know, and was no longer as dandified or flamboyant. When Sainsbury quit their partnership, Fish saw a new financial backer in a guy called Captain Fred Barker. However, bewildered by their financial losses, Barker decided to shut the shop down. Captain of what? Oh, I don't know. It wasn't a ship, I don't think. Right, okay. Uh, Industry. His last great design in 1974 was the African-inspired boxing robe that he made for uh, Muhammad Ali's Rumble in the Jungle with George Foreman. That is incredible, isn't it? I didn't know that. So uh, Fish tried briefly to resurrect his business. In 1974, he opened a new shop in Mount Street, this time with rock managers Robert Stigwood, Bee Gees and all that, Mm. and David Shaw as his investors. He then took a job with Silka in New York, a label famous for designing silk dressing gowns. In 1978, he returned to London to work for Jeremy Norman at the Hip Embassy Club in Bond Street, the capital's equivalent of Studio 54, not to be confused with the Embassy Club in Collyhurst, which was owned by... (laughs) <laughs> Mr. Fish's designs were trendsetters, including the kipper tie and the polo neck sweater, which really took off in New York and London at the back end of 1967. His most controversial design was the dress for men, one of which was worn by Mick Jagger at the Hyde Park Free Concert in 1969 and also in the film Performance. Yeah, but that was actually um, designed originally. The the, uh, the club of that Jagger wore at Hyde Park wasn't that originally designed for Sammy Davis Jr. or somebody else. We've covered it before. Yeah, he was one of the clients, Sammy. Davis, yeah. Well, so maybe there you go. Maybe, 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 maybe passed it up. <laughs> it must have been the same size. And I also, looking at this, it's great actually to think, you know, not so much a kipper tie, but <laughs> the polar neck sweater, <laughs> oh. which took off in New York. I mean, that was the, the basis for the kind of beatnik. It uh, was. Look, wasn't it? Very so, much so. I wonder how much he was responsible for that. Mm. Uh, anyway, Fish was credited as costume designer for Peter Sellers uh, in the film There's a Girl in My Soup and also designed the ruffle shirts for John Pertwee, hey. which he wore during his five-year stint as Doctor Who. This is great. Years later, Pertwee explained how he achieved the Doctor Who look. I wanted to wear something very severe, like a suit, but they said, no, that was too severe. So in order to do something for the front cover of Radio Times, I put an old velvet smoking jacket on a cape and a frilly shirt from Mr. Fish. It was very trendy at the time, and that stood like that on the front cover. Okay, so he continues. He said they liked it. Uh, I said, well, how are we going to explain it? So in the first story, they had me go into a changing room and nick a lot of clothing from various doctors. Some doctor had a hat, some doctor had a coat, then I put them on, went outside, and leapt into an old motor car, an old Vauxhall 1938, and drove off. Brilliant. So that's how that old look came about. It's so iconic. In an interview with Nick Cohn, Fish said, I tried to break down the frontiers for men. Do I care about the masses? Jesus Christ had only 12 disciples and one of them was Doubting Thomas. Oh, right, okay, very deep. So in 2004, Fish suffered a ruptured aorta leading to a severe stroke. He's been in a nursing home ever since. His brand has been bought by David Mason, revived Mr. Fish clothing in 2016 for his high street. Yeah, just brilliant. So we get to the Bowie connection here. Okay, so in February 1969, Bowie and Hermione Farthingale were filmed sitting on Mr. Fish cushions for a segment of the promo film Love You till Tuesday singing Chingaling. Bowie's mate Jeff McCormack, I didn't realise this either, had worked for Fish at his boutique on Clifford Street and introduced him to the designer. Bowie then went in and bought himself two velvet gowns. Good old Jeff. No, yeah. I didn't know that either. So in 1970, photographer Keith McMillan shot the cover sleeve of The Man Who Sold the World in Bowie's living room at Haddon Hall, with Bowie reclining on a chaise long in his cream and blue satin man's dress from Mr Fish. So this, this was one of the pivotal points in Bowie's career as well, yeah. wasn't it? Because it kind of triggered off um, David uh, actually 
coming out and saying uh, later on, mm. albeit, yeah, all right, you know, I am bisexual. Yeah. Because the question was raised, wasn't it? And it really wasn't popular in America, that cover. They, they didn't like it at, at all, all, did they? No, we'll get to that. So in January 1971, Bowie made an appearance on Granada TV's 601 Newsday, wearing his Mr. Fish dress and promoting his new single, Holy Holy. The programme producer asked him to explain himself, to which Bowie replied, it's just a nice dress. Well, I'll tell you what, this, I did speak to uh, Di Davis a while ago. Mm. Dive worked for Main Man. We'll be talking about Di and Main Man as well within M. Yeah. Uh, but this was a the that 601 Newsday. Uh, Di actually drove Bowie from London to Granada to do it. Right. And the researcher who booked Bowie for that particular show was Tony Wilson. Oh, really? Tony Whoa. Wilson of Factory Records yeah. and, of course, a, an anchorman for Granada TV uh, a few years down the line. And and, and Di did say on that uh, particular occasion when they were driving, he'd not met Bowie before, I don't right. think, but Bowie was talking, even at that point in time, about a new creation that he had in his mind, which turned out to be Ziggy. Oh, wow, amazing. Di Davis has got a really great story. So we are hoping uh, later on in the podcast when we get through to Zed uh, to go at uh, Hero to Zeros mm. and looking at all of the people who cross-pollinated with Bowie yeah, over the years and if we if we manage to do that then I will tell you uh, Di Davis will be right in there because his story is really really great. Okay so Bowie also wore the Mr. Fish dress on the cover of Curious magazine in 1970 when he was photographed alongside Freddie Beretti. While promoting the album in the US in February 1971 Bowie wore the Mr. Fish dress on his first first promotional tour and during interviews. On his first night in Los Angeles, he was refused entry to a restaurant because he was wearing the dress and they barred him on the grounds that he was a transvestite. Boo! He then went to several Valentine's Day parties in LA wearing a different Mr. Fish dress to each one. Uh, Bowie later told the New Yorker magazine about his early days and his first visits to the States. He says, on uh, one of my early trips, I wore my man's dress. A wacky designer in London, Michael Fish of Kipper Tie fame, produced that little number, three of them in all. I bought the lot, a variant on the medieval knight's attire or a sort of jazzed up Rossetti pre-Raphaelite job. Far as I remember, it went virtually unnoticed at the time. You guys already had Candy Darling and all that drag. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. M is for Mary Hopkin. Okay, so Mary Hopkin was born on the 3rd of May, 1950, in Ponta Wales. Now, we don't know if it's Dorwey or Dor. We're now, the thing is, Bob, that you gave me this line. You divvied up this research, right? Oh, look. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know I can barely pronounce my own name. Oh, Mark, come and on. being a broadcaster of no repute whatsoever, I am often faced with bands that I love from Wales, and quite often they have titles in Welsh, yes. and I am completely and utterly embarrassed on numerous occasions. So I thank you not at all, Bob. I thought you'd be right across that one I'll be honest I went to Anglesey not long ago oh you did and I can pronounce that oh. uh, so she was born on the 3rd of May 1950 in Anglesey <laughs> Wales she wasn't as a child she took singing lessons every week and began her career as a folk singer with a local group called the Selby Set and Mary now then <laughs> hang on should there be brackets there was she an afterthought or should there have been three dots I mean it's not it's not great is it the it's- Selby Set and Mary. It's not the best thing, anyway. I mean, was it a sort of take on Peter Paul and Mary, perhaps? But well, it either didn't way, work. it still not... looks like an afterthought. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. And Mary. So she released an EP of Welsh language songs for a local label called Cambrian before signing to Apple Records in 1968 as one of the Beatles' first clients. This had come about because I didn't realise this. Twiggy had seen her on the TV show Opportunity Knocks and then recommended her to Paul McCartney. I knew that she'd been on Opportunity Knocks because I think I saw it. Did it's you? just yeah, it's just in the dark recesses oh. there. But uh, anyway. 
Anyway, her debut single, Those Were The Days, produced by Paul McCartney, was released on the 30th of August, 1968, and went to number one in the UK. It was just massive, wasn't it? Mm, huge. Apparently, McCartney had first tried to get the Moody Blues to record the song, but they weren't interested. <laughs> it reached number two on the US Billboard charts, only held off the top spot, by the Beatles. Oh. Hey Jude. Global sales were in excess of 8 million. On the programme, uh, the six music programme that we do together, mm. we often end up talking about the Ruttles. We do. Uh, but there's a great section of the Ruttles um, whereby uh, Mick Jagger's going on about um, Paul McCartney, Dirk McQuigley, always trying to sell them songs, always trying to <laughs> hustle. And it's great the thought of him knocking on the Moody Blues door and going, do you want to buy this off me? No, you're all right, no, mate. No, Tom, mate. In December 68, the enemy reported that Hopkins was considering a lead acting role in Stanley Baker's forthcoming film The Rape of the Fur Country the project didn't materialise but she did end up singing title songs on two of Baker's films Where's Jack and Kidnapped absolutely her debut album Postcard again produced by Paul McCartney was released in February 69 included in covers of three tunes by Donovan who also played on the album and one song apiece from George Martin and Harry Nielsen got to number three in the UK so she wasn't big on songwriting I'm not being no. facetious but that wasn't her job was it no she's an interpreter really Mark. absolutely so the next single in March 1969 was Goodbye written by McCartney pointed mm. it reached number two in the UK only to be kept from the top by the Beatles oh, what a this surprise. time with Get Back and Hopkins said she viewed goodbye as McCartney's promise to stop micromanaging her career uh, since she was uncomfortable with his positioning of her as a pop chanteuse Ooh. now it is weird I mean it's fine she's got her own career and she's got yeah. to work on it but if you've got like one of the greatest pop minds ever Sven Garley in you, and you don't write your own songs, you would have to think that you might be uh, grateful for it. Just a gift house thing, really? Yeah. Bite the hand that feeds, etc.? OK, anyway, Hopkins' third single, uh, Tema Harbour, got to number six in early 1970. In March, she was a UK entry in the Eurovision Song Contest, coming second with Knock Knock Who's There. She lost out to the Irish lady, Dana, whose, uh, whose single was called All Kind, All Kind. Oh, yes. You don't have to sing it, Mark. I remember Sorry, it very, mate. very well. Uh, McCartney's insistence she recorded a cover of K Sarah Sarah, but Hopkins didn't want to do it at all and refused to have the single released in Britain. Around the same time, she was one of the chorus singers uh, alongside Donovan and Billy Preston on the Radha Krishna Temple's 1970 single Govinda, produced by George Harrison for Apple, of okay, course. Yeah, so her appearance at the Eurovision also led to a peak time TV series on BBC One Mary Hopkins in the land of dot dot dot. Each episode consisted of Hopkins looking at a different aspect of storytelling through music and dance. The six 30-minute programmes were broadcast in the autumn of 1970. OK, so a second album was called Earth Song, Ocean Song, released in October 71, produced by her husband, Tony Visconti, including cover versions of Cat Stevens, Gallagher and Lyle and Ralph McTell. Having made the album she'd always wanted to make, it's a strange decision, Hopkins then left the music business to have a family. Well, no, I can... Yeah, oh, I know, no, having a family, I'm, I'm not balking at that, but obviously she'd made the album she wanted to make, you'd just think, right, I'm on course here. Well, maybe, maybe she just thought, right, I, I've, I've realised everything I wanted to do now, all I need to do is have some babies. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, so uh, she didn't stop performing or recording, though, as it turned out. With Visconti's assistance, she released a 1972 Christmas single, Mary Had a Baby. <laughs> 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 Pick the bones out of that. Uh, Cherry Tree Carol on Regal Zonophone Records. Hopkins also starred in a one-off TV special for BBC One in July 1972. Sing high, sing low. Oh. It was billed simply as Light Entertainment, starring Mary Hopkins. Okay. Although no other singles or albums came out in her name until 1976, she sang on numerous recordings that Visconti had produced, including ones by Tom Paxton, Ralph McTell, Bert Jansch, The Radiators from Space, Thin Lizzy and Elaine Page. 
uh, on all of these recordings, she's credited as Mary Visconti. Right, OK. So in 1976, she returned to recording under her birth name and released the first of two singles, If You Love Me, Really Love Me, originally recorded by Edith Piaf on Visconti's Good Earth label. Two members of Steel Eye Span, Bob Johnson and Pete Knight, chose Hopkins to play Princess Lirazel mm. on their concept album, The King of Elfland's Daughter. <laughs> <laughs> I need to hear that now. Uh, she also appeared at the Cambridge Folk Festival with Bert Janch. 1976 also saw the birth of her second child. You have to say, she's got an, she's got an amazing voice. She has. I certainly. mean, we'll get into that as well because mm. people will think, all right, how do I know her voice? If you don't know the hits that she had, mm. but a really crystal clear, typical kind Beautiful. of folk voice. Mm. Uh, Hopkin and Visconti divorced in 1981. The following year, she provided vocals on Rachel's song for the Vangelis soundtrack of Blade Runner. In 1984, Peter Skellen asked her to join him and Julian Lloyd Webber in a band called Oasis, uh, and their album Oasis was released on WEA. Okay, so in September 2005, she released a retrospective album on a label run by her daughter, Mary Hopkin Music, entitled Live at the Royal Festival Hall, 1972. Hopkins' daughter, Jessica Lee Morgan, released her first album, I Am Not, in 2010. Hopkins sings on two of the tunes. In October that year, Hopkins and son Morgan released a collaborative album, You Look Familiar. Okay, and so uh, you might not be aware of this, Bob, but you will have seen Jessica Lee Morgan performing because she's uh, a member of uh, Holy Holy. Absolutely, I've seen her. Yeah, there you go. Okay, so we're looking at the Davy Bowie connection now. Hurrah! So Bowie met Hopkin when she and then husband Tony Visconti arrived at Haddon Hall for a homecoming party in May 1973. Three nights later, Hopkin and Visconti accompanied Bowie and Angie Bowie to Peter Cook and Dudley Moore's Behind the Fringe show at the Cambridge Theatre in London. Hopkin was also in the audience for the 1980 floor show in October that year. Lucky thing. Absolutely. So Hopkin was with Visconti at the Chateau de Reville in Paris for the recording of Low in 1976 where their son Morgan played with Zoe Bowie Zoe or Zowie never sure we never know do we she sang back in vocals on Sound and Vision she said later Brian Eno wrote the line and we sang it in unison it was a great little riff so I didn't need to offer any alternatives uh, he also let me read his thesis on cybernetics fascinating I think she meant it she wasn't being, <laughs> no wasn't being not being facetious no the song was first recorded as an instrumental with just her backing vocals before Bowie recorded his own parts he then trimmed some of them leaving the opening instrumental uh, section much longer so you know i mean it is it, it is just do, 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 yeah do, yeah do, do, and uh, and it is just yeah it's, it's a brilliant piece it so, is okay. wonderful uh, morgan then three years old played three simple notes on the piano which inspired eno to write warsaw a year later hopkin along with visconti and bowie was amongst the mourners and mark boland's funeral yeah now i interviewed adrian Ballou a while back probably about the year 2000 maybe and we're talking about uh, recording lodger in switzerland in uh, sort of late 78 early 79 and and he said, uh, the balcony hung over late Geneva. I was woken every morning by Mary Visconti singing folk songs in the room underneath mine. I'd wake up with the lakes and the mountains and the voice of an angel and think I was in heaven. Well, that's a huge compliment. The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. M is for Main Man. As we know, Main Man was the uh, management company for David Bowie. It picked up off the back of Ken Pitt. Mm. And it was Tony DeFries, basically. We'll get into the uh, the actual ramifications of who owned what in a short while. But mm. we've already done Tony DeFries. We have. And looked at his kind of career and his workings with Bowie and also the falling out. We'll get into a little bit of that as well. But the 17th of May, 1971, uh, a lot of this from uh, Kevin Cannes any day now again. Uh, Tony DeFries registers a new company, originally called Mini Bell Music, but changed to Main Man Limited. Limited, June 1972. Okay, so amongst the employees then, Mark? 
Coco Schwab? Well, the legendary right-hand woman for David Bowie yeah. from the early 70s right through until the end. And uh, you just uh, soulmates, you would Absolutely. have to say. I mean, and the person that Bowie trusted as much as anybody else that he ever had in the world, I think, yeah, looking at uh, the, the relationship that they had there. And she was so brilliant and, 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 and crucial to Bowie's well-being, to his staying alive. Uh, and it was uh, Coco Schwab, she actually, um, we've been through this as well, but she decided that she wanted to leave Maymay. And she'd been working there for a year or so. Right. And she was going to leave. And Bowie was so taken with her that he said, all right, yeah, leave the office. Come and be my personal assistant. Wow. So, that's and, and that's what she did. So uh, we never know either. Lee Black Childers or Lee Black Childers. Yeah. He was a vice president of the US operations. He was mixed up with the Andy Warhol. He was. Part of that lot, that's right. Yeah. And he also, I met him at the Peppermint Lounge. Probably mentioned this before. But when the four were playing there, it was probably 1981, possibly. Uh, but I remember got to see Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers play at the Peppermint Lounge the night before we played and at the bar uh, and Johnny Thunders was just amazing mm. um, but uh, at the bar I was introduced to this guy and it was Lee Black Childers Childers so I, just with uh, retrospect I should have asked him how to pronounce his name well it's probably a bit rude at the time Mark yeah. you know uh, Di Davis we've mentioned of course before we have there's also Cherry Vanilla who was uh, the publicist for Main Man for a while and, on, and Bowie's lover too it's documented it is documented and she did speak to you about uh, well both of those roles didn't she she did yes and there was some fruity stuff in there I don't mind saying quite candid was yeah, it but I, was. I also saw Cherry and Vanilla playing at Rafters uh, in Manchester I'm pretty sure it was and the police were a backing band at yes, that point in time Cyrinda yeah. so Fox um, we've mentioned this before she ran the New York office she was doing that when Bowie gave her a shout from uh, San Francisco to fly over and record outside the Mars Hotel that's uh, right the video uh, Tony Zanetta who was president of US operations yeah got Hugh Atwal who was possibly in an administration role do you think yeah yeah, it looks like it. And also Stewie George, who was security and driver. Mm. Okay, so it transpires that DeFries owns 99% of the company and a guy called Peter Gerber owns 1%. Right. Now, this is where it starts. This is kind of, quite possibly, the germs of the bad relationship and the soured relationship between Bowie and DeFries. Apparently, yeah. Bowie thought that he had an equal share in the business, but he didn't. He had precisely nout. Yeah. Okay, so, uh, yeah, all right, continue then, Bobber. So this is all because on the 30th of September, okay, Bowie signed a contract with Mainman, but dated 31st of September, no such date exists. Of course, Bowie thinks he's signing a management agreement, but is in fact a contract of employment, thus making him an employee of DeFries and the company. So this is a big, big mistake. You didn't really kind of look at the small print here. Not the first, though. I mean, it was so commonplace, wasn't it, for people to sign these contracts without even reading the thing. But the Bowie contract is considered to be, for the artist, one of the worst ever yeah. signed. And particularly, of course, with somebody who became so big and it tied him up for a while. Well, look at it here anyway. Uh, but it put Bowie into an absolute spin and despair. OK, and we will be looking at um, David Buckley's brilliant book, Strange Fascination, in a short while, just for his interpretation of the uh, series of events but uh, you, as we know Main Man what they used to do with Bowie was they would treat him particularly in America mm. as a star and they did it less extent but in a similar style for the spiders as well so they'd stay in the best hotels yeah. they would travel around in limousines they would have like unlimited bar bills but they never had any actual cash in the pocket and you know again maybe discussed but yeah, they wouldn't have enough money to buy a packet of cigarettes from a local uh, you know five and dime or whatever and would go out and trade off 
champagne or something yeah. for a packet of fags. So, it, you know, it was it was a, a strange way of working. It was. I mean, on a conceptual level, you take all the money out of it, which is difficult, I know. But, you know, it was brilliant in its way. Let's treat them like stars before this. Let's will them into being a star. It fits into that whole Ziggy thing, doesn't it? Well, it does. But, I mean, like, you, if you can imagine, like, a limousine coming up outside a hotel and somebody gets out, you go, wow, who's this going to be? And you're going, it's a, it's a weird-looking bloke with, with ginger hair yeah. and a Japanese print jumpsuit. Who is it? You find out. And it just adds to the kind of myth and the mysticism Absolutely. around it, doesn't it? Absolutely. So De Vries initially managed the solo careers of Bowie, Iggy Pop, Lou Reed, Mick Ronson, Mott the Hoople, Dana Gillespie, and later Luther Vandross and John Mellencamp. Uh, his main man group of companies assisted in the creation of many independent record and publishing companies later acquired by major conglomerates. OK, and so in 2000, he lost $22 million in an offshore tax evasion scheme. In 2011, he was sued by Capitol Records for copyright infringement. He lost a lawsuit with damages and costs against him totaling over $9 million. Oh. Um, but let's get to a strange fascination now, the David Buckley book. Mm. Uh, and it's a, it's a remarkable uh, piece of work. It really is. And... Uh, Hello, David. Um, I hope you're well. So uh, this is uh, just a section where we'll split it between us, Bob. Bowie was still dating Ava Cherry, and it's been reported that he was planning to divorce Angie to marry her. He was also in the process of divorcing himself from DeFries. Bowie had finally lost patience with him, and with the help of lawyer Michael Lippmann, which again didn't go too swimmingly later, uh, spent the first months of 1975 trying to begin the process of extricating himself from the main man empire. All right, so on the 29th of January 1975, Bowie visited RCA Records in New York, demanded an advance of money against young Americans and told them he was splitting from main man. DeFries was informed by letter of Bowie's decision the next day. The release of young Americans in the States was then delayed after Tony DeFries issued an injunction and both main man and RCA haggled over the ownership of the new album. On the 1st of April, after a 48-hour round of negotiations between Bowie, main man and RCA, a deal was struck, the terms of which were so punitive to the Bowie camp that allegedly the singer broke down at the conference table and was in shock for a week. Whoa. Main man would have a direct stake in Bowie's future until September 1982. Mm. Not only was DeFries now entitled to half of Bowie's earnings on all records from Hunky Dory through to David Live, he was also entitled to a huge 16% gross share of all Bowie's earnings until 1982. And this, of course, had so many ramifications, didn't it? Especially Bowie kind of becoming huge and a really mega-rich, big pop star in the 80s. You but know? the weird thing is, if you look at it, the date, I mean, it's like, oh, we've talked about yeah. Let's Dance and that being the, the, like, the real turning point when Bowie obviously decided, I've not made any money, I'm going to start making money now. Yeah. And so it finished in 1982. What happens in 1983? He engineers the most money-making machine that he's ever been involved with. We salute you, David Absolutely. Bowie. Absolutely. I mean, maybe he had, you know, he was thinking to himself, I'm going to do all of this stuff now. I'm going to get everything off my chest. I will take weird little diversions. And in 1983, the gloves are off. And that and that's what happened. And the gloves were off at Let's Dance with the Boxing. Absolutely. And of course, then he goes off on the biggest tour he'd ever done. Of course, Serious Moonlight. So anyway, back to 75. The main man contract that Bowie had signed on the fateful non-day of 31st of September 1972, which had awarded De Vries a timeless hold over Bowie as his manager, had, it seems, been broken. And the result was hugely injurious to Bowie himself. 
Yeah, so the main reason behind the split was not primarily DeFries or the circus that was main man, but Bowie's own sense of self-loathing, stoked by his cocaine abuse. It is undeniable that the terms of Bowie's main man contract basically meant that Bowie slaved for nothing other than advances and credit, while DeFries made himself extremely rich, but exploitation was the norm in the star-forward-slash-manager relationship. Bowie, producers, record company people, assistants and musicians alike were all abusing themselves chemically, and the result, by 1975, was that ordinary lines of communication had collapsed. De Vries himself was completely straight and viewed Bowie's addiction with increasing horror. Bowie wasn't hiding his drug intake now. Invited round to meet Ava Cherry's mother and father, Bowie finished off his meal by bringing out a file of coke and snorting right in front of them. De Vries was running out of patience and running out of enthusiasm for an artist who appeared intent on killing himself. Well, it's weird, isn't it? I mean, because obviously David Buckley is putting two and two together there and possibly getting four, yeah. possibly getting five. Mm. It's brilliantly written and it, and it does capture the moment. But you have to wonder, with a little bit of sense of sympathy for David Bowie, he'd already realised at this point in time that he wasn't really getting what you would consider to be a completely fair deal as the artist and you don't know whether that was one of the things that tipped him over the edge towards the drug abuse and abusing his body so you don't know what came first no it's very possible isn't it chicken or the egg yeah absolutely working so hard as well because it was non-stop when he wasn't in the studio he was out on the road and it was just like that and it must have been draining for his own energies to think i'm not going to make anything from this yeah yeah it would be so frustrating and, and heartbreaking the A to Z of David Bowie was written and presented by Rob Hughes and Mark Riley, recorded and edited by Howard Nock, with social media graphics by Jason Reed. If you'd like to review or rate this podcast, well, that would be much appreciated. In the next episode... Massier, Tony Massier. The Marquee. Mercury Records. Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. Meltdown Festival. 